in the propitiation of Christ, we have a satisfaction of God's wrath, removal of sin and guilt, and this is possible because it's a substitutionary aspect. Jesus was in whose place when he was on the cross? Our place. Sinner's place, right? And that's why he was able to satisfy God's wrath, because he was reckoned as one of us. An amazing thing. All the wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus. We are able to have that sin and that guilt removed from our account because he took it all. He paid it all. We sang that song last week. He was a substitution for us. All right, so when we consider intercession, intercession, we have on the one hand, all of this. That's Jesus interceding for us because he was a substitution for us. So the past tense of Jesus' intercession was he died for us. Past tense. An intercessor. Right? But there's also a present tense. And in what way is Jesus presently interceding as a priest? He's our advocate before the Father. Right, we have these titles for Jesus in the New Testament. Advocate, mediator, right? Very important. Um, and it, we, we don't have the title intercessor as a noun, but we have in Hebrews 7, he makes intercession for us, so we can call him that, intercessor. Hebrews 7, 25, he always lives to make intercession to intercede for saints, for believers in him. So the propitiation of Christ was his death on the cross and these elements. That indicates one way he interceded for us in a moment in history in the past. And today he still intercedes for us by being our advocate, our mediator, our intercessor. Because we are center, sinners who need to be reconciled to God and we are reconciled to God through the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. And 1 John uh, 2, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is uh, one God. There is only one God and only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That is his present ministry. So we can say Jesus interceded for us, past tense, as sinners, when he presented his life to the Father as an appropriate sacrifice. And Jesus still intercedes for us, present tense, as believers. He's called advocate, perfecter, mediator. Listen. Do those three things, can those be interchanged or do they mean different things? They mean different things. <coughs> yep. So the word for advocate there is actually, if my memory serves me correctly, the same word as... Um, the Holy Spirit comforter, parakletos, which means to come alongside. Let me just double check since we have technology and you can double check these things so quickly. I also could have my... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yes, it is parakletos. Uh, so it's the same word that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. I, I will leave and I'm going to send to you another... You could say advocate. Um, he says another because Jesus is one and the Holy Spirit is one. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us too, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. What does Romans 8 say about when the Holy Spirit intercedes for us particularly? What example is given in Romans 8? When we 
when we don't know how to pray. When we don't know how to pray as we should. We don't know how to pray as we should. He intercedes for us, making prayers with groanings too deep for words. It says in Romans 8. But anyway, okay. Good? Clear? Last week we looked at these three passages. Romans 8, 33 to 35, Hebrews 7, 23 to 25, and Revelation chapter 1. In uh, Romans 8, we talked about how because of our salvation... Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So his intercessory ministry, as he is presently interceding for us as our advocate, mediator, perfecter, intercessor, it's perfect, isn't it? Nothing can separate us from the love of God because we have that love in Christ. So no one can remove our mediator from us, but he perfectly keeps us. In Hebrews 7, I referenced that just a moment ago. In Hebrews chapter 7, uh, how Jesus always lives to make intercession for the saints. And that includes when we sin, when we disobey, when we rebel. Jesus is there to intercede for us. He's the one as our advocate before the throne. And are we going to be accepted if we have Jesus as an advocate? Yes. Yes, we will. No one who has Jesus as an advocate, no one who has Jesus as an advocate will be turned away. He's the perfect intercessor. And then in Revelation 1, do you remember what we looked at? Revelation 1 and then into chapter 2 just slightly there. What was Jesus doing in Revelation uh, chapter 1, that passage we looked at? He was among the lampstands. Yeah, he was walking among the lampstands. And the lampstands represented churches. He was walking among the seven golden lampstands, and the seven golden lampstands represented the churches of Ephesus and Laodicea, etc., etc. All right? Um, He is interceding for the churches, and we'll dwell on that more here in a moment. In one sense, Jesus is seated. We see that in the New Testament. Jesus is sitting, signifying that the work is complete. Yet in another sense, Jesus is actively interceding on behalf of his people. There's one sense, propitiation, the work is complete. He's made purification for sins, Hebrews chapter 1. And yet, he's actively interceding for us in the present, Hebrews chapter 7. (laughs) Hebrews 1 says, he's seated, it's over. Hebrews chapter 7 says, he always lives to make intercession for the saints. A past and present uh, aspect to his ministry. His propitiation is entirely complete, but his intercession is ongoing. Right? How bad would it be if his propitiation was not complete? <laughs> and how bad would it be if he wasn't currently interceding? <laughs> Aren't we thankful that these two aspects are in the tenses that they are? Yes. Every Every wayward movement, every false religion does not believe the propitiation is entirely complete. They reject that. There's something more for you to do, to add to it. And they don't believe that they have a perfect intercessor. They believe they're their own intercessors. Not good. From Charles Ryrie, our Lord was standing to sustain Stephen. You see that at the end of Stephen's life. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
He does the same today with respect to local churches as he walks among the golden lampstands. His work of redemption is finished, so he is seen seated, indicating he will never have to rise again to do it over or to add to it in any way. Perfectly complete his work of redemption. As Utahns well know, there are two types of priesthoods, the Aaronic and Melchizedek. To fully understand the work of Jesus, we must fully understand the functions of these priesthoods. So I uh, have those boxes there for you and there's space underneath. You can write down uh, some facts about each, but I'll go ahead and throw this out there openly. What do we already know about the biblical Aaronic priesthood? I don't want us to talk about our cultural Aaronic priesthood, but what do we know about the biblical, either Aaronic or Levitical, as it's most commonly called, priesthood um, as described in Scripture? It was never finished. Okay. One would die, a priest would die, and another had to take his place because there was no end to it. Yes. But there were other priests who served under him. But there was only one high priest who went into the Holy of Holies. Yep. In the Torah, it was outlined uh, for Israel that there was to be one at a time. And was it um, was it the man who won a vote? How did they How did they choose a high priest? Inherited. <laughs> Say that again. Inherited by. And, yeah. by yeah. Started with Aaron. Blood. Yeah, by Aaron's specific lineage. And then as we read on in the Old Testament, it got even more specific. What grandson of Aaron did it get whittled down to? Phineas. So from that point, because of the whole incident with Phineas in the book of Numbers, I don't remember what chapter, 20-something, 25, he, the Lord said that the priests were to come through Phineas from that point forward. So it got whittled down even more from Aaron. Uh, that's very important, isn't it? Not just any person could have that priesthood. And there was only one at a time. Very, very important. So they were males from the tribe of Levi. You can write all these things down that we've been saying, but here are some other notes, more general. Males, right? It couldn't be women, it had to be men from that specific tribe. They were descendants of Aaron. And again, you can get more specific and say Phineas. Phineas, which is a... Didn't just recently, Melissa, we talked about the spelling of Phineas? Oh, yeah. Phineas is spelled in a way that I wouldn't expect it to be spelled. Is it not a P-H? P-H-I-N-E-H-A-S? Yeah, maybe that was it. Someone figure that out. We need to get to the bottom of that by the end of the class today. <clears throat> Again, as Melissa said, only one high priest at a time. They made sacrifices on behalf of the people on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, this is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. It happened once a year, and the high priest was the one who was to facilitate the sacrifice that made purification for sins for all the people temporarily once a year. And the high priest could only enter the holy place in the temple or the tabernacle, depending on the point of Israel's history, on the Day of Atonement once per year. Only the high priest could enter that holy place, and he could only do it once a year. Important to note also. 
With the PH and then another H. I -E H A S. Okay, very good. Thank you, Gary. The number's 25. Very good. So two H's and Phineas. Who would have thought? Phineas. All right. Thoughts or questions on the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood? Okay, give you another moment to write down everything you want to write down. We're still working on figuring out this classroom space. Uh, not actively working. <laughs> but this table won't stay here forever with all this garbage on it. And we need to figure out the spacing a little better. It's a little tight for the teacher up here. But uh, we're, we're getting there. Hopefully the TV has been functional for you. And hopefully this setup has been all right for you. Yeah, you know that pulpits don't restrict me. Yeah. Loose cannon. Ah, yes. Yeah, might need that. As I get older, it might turn into my um, my theology professor from school who would just walk through as he would teach. He would, just, he would walk through and, what do you, what do you think, Joe? He'd just get right here. <laughs> That'll make you feel real comfortable, won't it? <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about Melchizedek. The Melchizedek priesthood. What do we know about this whole item, biblically speaking? Melchizedek and the priesthood associated with him. What do we know? It's non-Jewish. Non-Jewish, because there was no such thing as a Jew <laughs> when Melchizedek lived. And all the way back in Genesis 14. Okay, what else? Abraham gave him 10%, is that right? Yeah, Abraham met him, and Abraham paid him a tithe. Recognizing that Melchizedek was greater than he. We don't know much about him. Like, we don't know his lineage, and we don't really know what happened to him. Good. His genealogy is a mystery. In fact, his entire existence is a mystery outside of Genesis 14. His, um, the city where he reigned is a bit of a mystery. Do you remember where he was from? He was the king of? Salem. Salem. Which, it makes sense. This would be perhaps Jerusalem. Uh... Jerusalem before it took on the full name as we know it today. But there's just a lot we don't know. Uh, there, there's a strong case to be made that Melchizedek in Genesis 14 was a uh, Christophany. And you guys know that word. What is a Christophany? Pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So Melchizedek could have been Jesus himself. Could have been a king. Uh, that was known by many men at that time. We just don't know a lot of the details. Okay, so one guy, there was no one else that had this priesthood, Mel just Melchizedek. It was unique. And it was a kingly priesthood. He was a king, the king of Salem, and also considered a priest. Very different from the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood, that it was unrelated to genealogy. It, as Jerry pointed out, it preceded Judaism, it preceded Jacob and his 12 sons and the tribes and all that. It preceded all of that. So it's not Jewish and it's not related to genealogy. It makes it very, very different from the other priesthood. It's timeless. We see in scripture, and we'll look at these passages momentarily, we see that there's no beginning, no end. It's a timeless priesthood, a timeless office. And it's the most superior priesthood. 
Abraham gave tithes to him. And we have these references in the Bible. I mentioned Genesis 14, and then Psalm 110, and the book of Hebrews mentions him several times. So let's... um, Let's look at Psalm 110 together. Hi, April. Psalm 110. And we'll look at the first five verses. Hey there, Leroy. Good to see you. Oh, sorry about that. You're, you're chairless. <laughs> I guess you'll stand. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> oh, my. Well, we're just turning to Psalm 110 together to talk about this Melchizedek priesthood stuff that our neighbors like to talk about so much. Actually, they probably don't like to talk about it. Uh, at least not with you or with me. <laughs> I had an interesting conversation with my boss and my brother not too long ago. Okay. <laughs> interesting as in productive or interesting as in... Um, well, one of them predicts we're already into the um, seven years. Oh, my. And that they have an apostle in Missouri. Oh. He's going to get drugged through the streets because um, he's one of the witnesses. And, well, I don't know. Oh, my. No. no, no, no. Wow. <laughs> In Missouri. All roads lead to Missouri. <laughs> I like Missouri. I'm sorry. Yeah, me too. Yes. <laughs> and the other one thinks that we have another thousand years because they're, um, they still have to do all the baptisms for the dead, the people. Oh. So okay, I, yeah. <laughs> interesting perspectives. Interesting is a good word. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> well, speaking of Missouri, uh, Missouri is the first state that is now without any abortion clinics first one they uh they've been declared abort the first abortion free state and that term abortion free is a bit of a misnomer you can still order pills and get access to pills and have a abortion at home but they're the first state to not have any clinic Uh, all the planned parenthoods are shut down and removed and uh, all the other providers are removed so missouri you guys need to think highly of Missouri. <laughs> yes, hopefully there will be many to follow. All right, Psalm 110. Would someone like to read verses 1 through 5 for us of Psalm 110? Psalm 110, 1 to 5. Jerry Carroll, go ahead. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I have your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of the epistle. The Lord is as your right hand. And verse. The rest of verse 5? Oh, yeah, he will shatter kings in the day of his mm-hmm. And that's an important reminder for these days we're, we're living in. 
uh, for all days, but especially these days. So, uh, what do you remember the fact, little biblical trivia factoid I gave you about Psalm one ten one? Maybe last week, maybe the week before. Psalm one ten one is the most in the most quoted or referenced verse in the New Testament. Hmm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, this is obviously uh, the father and son speaking. To It's a conversation before the son came to earth where God the son was told, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Um, he came to earth lived a perfect life, perfectly accomplished his mission, ascended back into heaven at the right hand of God. And what is he doing right now? Sitting at his right hand until his enemies are made a footstool. But as we read through this passage, we see down in verse 4 that in this dialogue, in this conversation, God the Father pronouncing, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this verse comes up Several times in Hebrews, we see reference to this theme and reference to this verse in Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, and Hebrews 7, applying it to the person of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Hebrews 7 together, and I want us to see it's a larger portion of Scripture, but as we have this background, I want you to see this and connect the dots for yourself. Hebrews has quite a bit to say about Melchizedek. And we're getting to the point here in chapter 7 where uh, things, all the dots are getting connected and the picture is in fuller view of how Jesus is a fulfillment of this priesthood and this order. Let's have someone read verses 1 to 3, just the first three verses. Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. Who's got it? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues to priest forever. All right, so just considering those first three verses, how was he like the Son of God, this Melchizedek? No genealogy. No genealogy. But you open up Matthew 1, Luke 1, maybe Luke 2, Luke 1, Luke 2. You open up the beginning of these Gospels, you see a genealogy of Jesus. In fact, my Bible puts at the top the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So what do you mean? He existed eternally. All right. So this requires a knowledge of the hypostatic union, doesn't it? That Jesus is truly God, meaning he has no genealogy. That's one of the many things it means. He has no genealogy because does God have a father? No, no he does not. And if Jesus is God, Jesus doesn't have a father in the biological sense. Right, so Jesus is truly God and truly man. We read about his genealogies in the Gospels because he became a man born into a Jewish system, born into 
um, a lineage because he was born to a woman. And in that regard, he does have a genealogy, but he, being God, has no genealogy in that he existed before his incarnation and no one brought him forth into existence. He has always existed because he is God. So he has no genealogy. Is there anything else in there? In the ways that Melchizedek is like the son of God. Okay, his name is King of Righteousness. Wow. Can we rightly call Jesus King of Righteousness? I'd say certainly. Most certainly. All right. How about King of Peace? That one too? Yeah, indeed. And even it's tied to not having genealogy, but there in verse 3, neither beginning of days nor end of life. Nor beginning of days nor end of life. Now it's... It, again, it's debated as to whether this is being said of Melchizedek in the sense that in Scripture we don't see his genealogy, so we don't know his beginning of days. We don't know how his life ended. Or perhaps there's this is uh, proof that Melchizedek was the uh, pre-incarnate son of God, that Melchizedek was uh, Jesus before his incarnation. We don't know, but we do know that it's uh, what we see in Scripture he had no beginning, no end, and of course, Jesus being God has no beginning and no end. Remains a priest perpetually. All right, now let's keep reading. Verses 4, let's do 4 to 10. Would someone read verses 4 to 10 for us? Who's got that? Thanks, Lisa. Now observe how great this man was. <coughs> Abraham, patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Those indeed of the sons Levi, who received the priest's office of commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren. Although these are destined from Abraham, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without a dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Did you say through ten? Yeah. In this case, mortal man received tithes, but in that case, one receives them. And it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. All right, so the point that the author of Hebrews is making here is uh, akin to the very first point that Jerry brought up about the Melchizedek priesthood. It's outside of Judaism, it's disconnected from Judaism. Abraham paid tithes to him. Uh, it says that. Um, in verse uh, 9, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham's action. Abraham was the father of Israel, and Levi was, it says in verse 10, Levi was in his loins. He was in the loins of his father Abraham. And therefore, all of Israel is subservient to this priesthood. This is a priesthood that exists outside of Israel, and it's superior to the priesthood of the Levites. And that's what he goes on to write here. And I'll read verses 11 to 17. Notice what he says, the argument he's making. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, this is the other one, the Aaronic priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? 
For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And it goes on and on. But let, let's just make some basic points, because I know that it, it can be kind of complicated when you read through that. But there's just some basic things that we can pull out of there. Another thing that Jerry had mentioned when we were talking about the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood is that there's not an end to it. A high priest dies, and it's not, okay, uh, high priest uh, Daryl died. <laughs> there was no one named Daryl in Israel, but let's just say so. Uh, now the priesthood is over. That's not the case. Now you got to pick, you know, priest Billy Bob over here, and he takes Daryl's place because the priesthood has to keep going and going. <laughs> yes, yeah, other, the other brother Daryl had to take his place. Well, when um, when Jesus came, he didn't come as a Levitical priest, did he? He didn't come as one according to, uh, to Aaron's line. He came as one in the order of Melchizedek. And his qualification was there in verse 16. His qualification that he met was an indestructible life. He had no beginning of days, no end of days. His life was indestructible. So he comes along and he changes this succession. For generations, it had been high priest after high priest in the Levitical system. Then Jesus comes along and he replaces that priesthood with the Melchizedek priesthood, which he achieved through his propitiation, this final sacrifice. In the Levitical system, there were sacrifices year after year. It just kept going and going. One guy, the high priest dies, well, get another high priest. We've got to make more sacrifices. And over and over and over it went. But when Jesus came along, he didn't come according to that priesthood. He came according to another priesthood, which required only one sacrifice, once for all, never to be done again. Therefore, his priesthood is absolutely superior. And there's a note in here, too, in verse 12, with this priesthood change, there's a change of law. It's a new covenant. We're no longer in the Levitical system, under Levitical priests, obeying the, the law uh, in the sense that they were. But we've been freed from the law. We're no longer under law, but we're under grace. And that's because the Melchizedek priesthood holder, Jesus, has come making a sacrifice once for all, freeing us from that system, freeing us to live and serve him apart from the law he came. Okay? A lot there. Thoughts or questions, though, on that? If Melchizedek wasn't Jesus, uh -huh. but his priesthood went over forever, then we have two high priests? <laughs> well, that's, that's the problem with that view. That's one of the problems <laughs> with that view. Yeah, both views have their problems. Yeah. Um, but that's one of the problems with that one is, okay, well, he lives forever. He continues holding his priesthood. What does that mean? Um, I imagine it could be said, well, Jesus has just fulfilled it, replaced it, or whatever, but 
as far as dealing with the text of scripture, you have difficulties fitting that in there. Yeah. Yep, Melissa. So the order, like the order of priesthood would be Melchizedek was first before the Levitical yep. priesthood. Oh, I see. Yes. As far as in world history, introduction of priesthoods, yes. the Melchizedek priesthood was first. I don't know if I'd say introduced, but they were aware of that one first. Yes. And then God established the Levitical priesthood through the law. Yes. But Melchizedek still like was this unknown well yeah i mean it's interesting as you read through the old testament after genesis 14 the only place you see melchizedek referenced is psalm 110 and so you do kind of wonder how much did they know about it how much did they care (laughs) yeah we just we don't know but then the author of hebrews comes along and the author of hebrews uh he's writing to jews it sounds like the author was a jew himself and it would make sense he comes along and he has a lot to say about melchizedek so I'm sure there was a lot of speculation. I'm sure there was, there was a lot of folklore at that time. But from Psalm 110 and from the book of Hebrews, we get a divine explanation of everything. And that's just where we have to be satisfied because we don't know much else. And when Jesus came, he removed the Levitical priesthood, the need for the Levitical priesthood, and he fulfilled the yes. priesthood. Yes, because uh, it, it's an offense to go on making sacrifices for sin, isn't it? You are, you are saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. And uh, they do it because they're veiled. This is the argument in uh, 2 Corinthians 3. Even today in the synagogue, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their eyes, and they don't see. Uh, therefore, they go on making sacrifices, not recognizing that their great high priest has come and set them free from the law. Mr. Bowen. Question about Psalm 110 because Psalms, I don't know if that one was written by David, but in any case, it was David's ambition to make Jerusalem the capital of Israel, and he would have certainly known about Melchizedek. So I wonder if there's something of that motivating him. Obviously, nobody else was interested because they were yeah. a long time in the land, and only David was the one interested in capturing that stronghold. Psalm 110 was written by David. Wow. There you go. And yeah, that could that's a totally plausible theory. We can ask him in heaven. And I'm I'm thankful we're on this side of the revelation of the Melchizedek priesthood. So what is the importance of Jesus holding such a unique priesthood? I, I think we've answered that question, but if any of you would like to articulate that with a sentence, uh, I would enjoy it. What's the importance of Jesus holding such a unique priesthood? Wow. Go on this one for a while. First of all, he has to fulfill scripture. Mm-hmm. Context of the Old Testament. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, to, to understand the the covenants and how we are, again, not under the law but under grace, you have to understand how Jesus did what he did. Not just what he did, but how he had the authority to do it. 
And this priesthood explains quite a bit of that. Jesus fulfilled the Aaronic priesthood by entering the eternal holy place and making peace with God once for all by his own blood. Jesus fulfilled the Melchizedek priesthood by being the eternal ruler of the universe who, after making his offering, is our priest forever. So there's absolutely no need for either, either priesthood anymore. Jesus is our great high priest. He is all that we need. Also no need for any other kings. No need for any other king. That's right. No king but Jesus. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, he's our only mediator. We have no need of an earthly priest. <laughs> yep. Have any, has anyone in here ever been Catholic? I don't think anybody in here has ever been, been Catholic. Were you Catholic for a time, Leroy? My mother was. Oh, okay. Did she go to confession? Okay, and prayed the rosary and yeah. all those things. Yeah, they had made up mediators, and we need no other mediator. We just need Jesus. We can go directly to God because of what Jesus has done. Okay. What is the resurrected Christ doing right now? He is interceding at the Father's right hand. Even now, he is thanking of us, bringing our needs to the Father's attention. Of course, Scripture also speaks of the Holy Spirit's interceding. The two persons act in unity to bring the believer's needs before God's great throne of grace. The Father willingly hears the intercession of His Son and His Spirit. The bottom line is that we can be sure that the Father will withhold no good thing from us. The whole Trinity is on our side. God is of one mind on our behalf, and if God before us, who can be against us? Good quote, isn't it? John Frame. He's, he's good with words. All right. Other thoughts or questions on priests before we move on to king? We'll just barely get started on that today and finish next week. Good question. Who can be against us? Yeah. I've had people say nobody. That's not what it means, yeah, who could be against us to any effect? The answer is not a one. All right, well, let's talk about Jesus as king. Oh, let's back up. Melissa has something. I wasn't here last week, yeah. and the description, the two blanks, Christ was on Okay. <laughs> so on the... Uh, yeah, that, that one's these two words. By his propitiation and his intercession. That's it. Christ fulfills the office of priest by his propitiation and his intercession. Alrighty. Let's talk about Jesus as king. There is an already not yet aspect to the kingship of Christ that makes this doctrine difficult to grasp. So let's start there that this can get pretty complicated, and next week we'll get into the weeds a little bit. We'll try to stay out of the weeds this week, because maybe you didn't use bug spray this morning. I don't want you to get bit. All right, next week we'll, we'll jump into it. But there's an already not yet aspect, meaning Jesus is already king, and simultaneously Jesus is not yet king. And we're going to explain that. But first, let's consider Isaiah 9 and Matthew 2 and John 12. 
All right, let's, uh, let's go to Isaiah 9. We'll look at all these together. This might be the slide we end on today. I don't know. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 should be familiar verses to you. Christmas verses. Jerry, do you want to sing it for us? Okay. Well, do you want to read it? <laughs> do you want to read it still? Nevertheless, you don't need to be looking at the text for these, do you? That's it. And then, uh, you did very good. I'll, I'll finish it off. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. What will accomplish this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. That's it. The zeal of Yahweh will accomplish this. All right. So what an amazing passage. Who's this talking about? This is, come on, who's this talking about? Jesus. Jesus, okay. Remember, we're studying, uh, we're in Christology, studying Christ. Uh, it's talking about Jesus, okay? Uh, he will be born to us. The government will rest on his shoulder. So let's look, as you're, as you're looking at that text, let's pick out the kingly aspects of this. The government will rest on his shoulders. So who will be in charge? Jesus. Jesus. He's a king. Okay, verse 7 there will be no end to the increase of his government. And it's a government of peace. <laughs> Won't that be nice to experience that? A government of peace. And there will be no end to it. Okay, so he's not only the one in charge, but he can't be limited. Or he can't be contained. His will will prevail. And he will be on whose throne? David. David's throne. David's throne. And that's very important. We'll discuss that. Some more next week. He will be on David's throne, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness forever and ever. There's no end. No end. All right, so now with that in mind, let's turn to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. And let's see what they were saying when Jesus came into the world. Let's do verses 1 and 2. Would someone read Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2 for us? Who's got it? Jim, you got it? Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king over the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. All right. And I'm going to read for you John 12. Verse 13, which says, They took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Right? So we see from the, these two basic accounts in the Gospels that from the moment of his birth, Jesus was rightly called king. He was recognized as a king, even from birth. We sing uh, as a joy to the world, the newborn king, the newborn king. Wow. Amazing thought. Second, we have to recognize that Jesus' status as king was rejected by men. Maybe next week we'll jump into those verses and look at them specifically. This fact doesn't make it any less correct to acknowledge him as king. However, it is clear that he did not establish an earthly kingdom. Okay, so on the one hand... He was prophesied to be born and to be a king. Isaiah 9, just those two verses in Isaiah make that clear. Okay. On the other hand, they, weren't, they didn't recognize him as king when he came. And there was no earthly kingdom that was established at his first coming. And you might be thinking, well, isn't the church his earthly kingdom? And there's some nuance to that, and we'll discuss that in detail. But for now, we need to recognize that one, Jesus is a king. Scripture declares him to be such. And two, people don't recognize him as king. He's rejected as king. There is no, not yet, there is no government with an unending increase of peace and righteousness. That's not happening yet. So there's an already not yet aspect to this kingship that makes it difficult to grasp. But as we study it out, I think we'll get to a a comfortable place. Thoughts on that so far, those two elements. who acknowledged him as king. Hmm. Right. It was, again, it was not Jews. And, and children don't know any better. Hmm. Although we call it children, but it was actually the throng of the mobs. Mm-hmm. The, the adults too. And um, even his mother and father didn't really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the in this sense of understanding. Yeah, because in the Jewish mind, the Jews who knew Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, that there was coming a king and the government would be on his shoulders, what was in their mind of what was going to happen? Israel. Israel ruling the world. Yeah. He's going to come and it's going to be over for the other nations. They're going to be gonzo. They're done. I mean, they're oppressing us now. We're, I mean, as an Israelite, you're just living with constant oppression, right? Generation after generation, you're beaten down by all these other nations who hate you. And your hope is in this coming king. And when he comes, he's going to lift Israel up and put everybody else down. So that's in their mind. And rightly so, because that's what the Old Testament declares. And they had a hard time figuring out how this Jesus, who himself was being oppressed like the nation of Israel, how he could be the king. That didn't make sense for them because they they saw it as one who was going to come in with guns blazing. They didn't see two comings of Christ. They saw one coming of the Messiah, the one who was to come and kill everybody, kill the Romans and lift up the Jews. That's what was in their mind. And uh, they didn't get the already not yet aspect. 
That's what we need to get as we have the full revelation of God and as we are Gentiles grafted into this tree, as we've been taken from our wild roots and grafted into an olive tree. Okay? They were expecting like David or Solomon, only greater. Yes. More. <laughs> yeah, like a, maybe an Alexander the Great type of character. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's where we'll stop today. There are no other questions or thoughts. Well, may I make a thought? You may. Yes. On the fly. Very good segue. This is about Israeli fighter pilots. Oh. My boss worked in Israel for many years, worked on the drone development that Israel was developing mm. secretly with Boeing's Anyway, he, was, he got to fly around in F-15s, and he was on one flight where they inducted a new class of fighter pilots. And to be a fighter pilot for Israel, you have to agree that you're going to fight to the death. Hmm. And when they do their ceremony, they have a flyover with a missing man formation. Hmm. So to this day, after all this time, they still are, it's interesting, I mean, these are some totally secular Israelis, but they still, unknowingly, are paying attention to the Old Testament. There are lots of things that are in their blood. And what does... Israel mean those Hebrew words that come together to make the word Israel? Do you remember what it means? El means God. If you see El as an ending in a in a Hebrew word, it means God. But their name means struggles with God. Remember Jacob wrestled with the angel, and your name is struggles with God. And if you look at Israel's history, they're constantly struggling with God. That's what they're doing, striving with God. So. On the other, the other part, the context I forgot is they do that ceremony on, on Masada, hmm. the top of the hill. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll pause there today. And I, I forgot on the top of your sheet, your new one that has space for king. It doesn't say king at the top of that sheet. You can actually scratch out prophet and put priest and king, because that's what that sheet is about. I know you guys pay a lot of attention to that stuff. I'm sorry I, I ruined it for you. So, why don't I uh, pray for us, and then we'll move along.